Welcome to Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions. I'm Laura Nyrider. And I'm Steve Drizzen. Last week, we told you the story of Robert Davis, a false confession case that happened in Virginia. Today, we're going to tell you about a case out of Chicago, the story of a violent and tragic crime that took the life of a young girl. But there's a larger reason why we want to talk about this case, because of what it also took from not one, but five innocent teenage boys and from their families and communities. This case happened during what we now call the super predator era, the 1980s and 1990s. The news media was saturated with stories of urban crime, drugs, and gangs, and in particular, sensationalized stories about black and brown youth committing violent crimes in groups. This narrative is often associated with New York City. It drove the wrongful prosecution of the so-called Central Park Five wolf pack. But it didn't stop there. Today, we're going to tell you about a group of teenage boys whose false confessions transformed them into Chicago's own wolf pack. They're known as the Dixmore Five. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. You know, Chicago may be called the second city, but when it comes to false confessions, we don't take a backseat to anybody, not New York or any other jurisdiction for that matter. We're home to more false confessions than any other city in the United States. We're home to more juvenile false confessions, and we're also the home of more cases in which there are multiple false confessions. And over the years, the Center on Wrongful Convictions has obtained exonerations in many of these cases all of which were from African-American teenagers in the Chicago area. 
Marquette Park 4, Uptown 7, Englewood 4, Dixmoor 5, these numbers start to add up. And the thing is, each one of these cases involves innocent African-American teenagers in groups confessing to crimes they didn't commit. Of course, the most famous case like this was New York's Central Park 5 case. In April of 1989, five teenage boys were charged with the sexual assault and the attempted murder of a female jogger in New York's Central Park. The boys falsely confessed to beating this woman within an inch of her life and leaving her in the woods to die. The Central Park Five confessions were driven by race. Wolf packs, wilding, was a whole new language to describe groups of African-American and Latino teenagers. And it created a level of fear in New York City and around the country that I had never seen before. So when we began to look at the Dixmore case, the case of the Central Park Five was ringing in my ears. It was November of 1991, and 14-year-old Katrisa Matthews was in the eighth grade. She lived with her mom in Dixmore, a suburb on the south side of Chicago, surrounded by a tight-knit extended family and community. Every day after school, Katrisa followed the same routine. She'd walk to her great-grandmother's house where she'd do her homework, talk on the phone, and do whatever 14-year-old girls do after school. She was waiting until her mom came home from work to go back to her own house. Katrisa followed this routine religiously until November 19, 1991, when she doesn't show up at her great-grandmother's house after school. Her family panics. They call the police, and a search begins. But for three weeks, there's no sign of Katrisa until December 8, 1991. That's when Katrisa's body is found, lying in a wooded field next to the interstate highway that runs through Dixmore. She's on her back, partially undressed, with her pants draped across her lower body. On her chest is a spent casing from a 25 caliber bullet. She's been shot once in the mouth. Even though Catrice had been missing for three weeks, the medical examiner concludes that she's been killed recently, right around the time her body's found. There are several reasons for this. For one thing, rigor mortis is present when she's found. That usually disappears about 24 to 48 hours after death. Her body is also still bleeding when she's discovered, which you wouldn't expect if she'd been killed much earlier. And also, when a body's been lying outside for a long time, there are usually signs like animal or insect bites. There's nothing like that here. And the medical examiner finds something else, too. Semen on Catrice's body. She's been raped. This was an awful crime. It's the worst. I mean, it's every parent's nightmare to have this happen to their child. You know, when you think of a crime like this, you don't think of it as something that teenagers would do. Typically, teenage crimes are impulsive crimes, There's not a lot of planning or premeditation. They happen in the spur of the moment. But this crime clearly required some forethought. For 11 long months, the investigation into Catrice's death goes nowhere. Until fall 1992, when a teenage boy tells police that he saw Catrice getting into a car with some friends around the time of her disappearance. Police decide to question those friends, starting with Robert Veal on October 29, 1992. Now, Robert's 14 years old, but he has pretty severe intellectual limitations that make him think more like a five-year-old. He's questioned for hours without a parent or a lawyer present, off camera. And in the end, he signs a confession, 
prepared by his interrogator, and the story in this confession is brutal. Robert says he and four other African-American teenage boys kidnapped a girl they knew from school. They gang-raped her as she pleaded with them to stop, and then they shot her once in the mouth. It was a story of an animalistic group of black teenagers attacking their classmate for sport. The level of depravity in this story was so out of bounds that it made me question whether it was true. But it also had an eerily familiar ring to it. And for me, the significance was as I was seeing the same explanations in different cases, which made me begin to feel that like maybe there was a script that was getting passed around among Chicago police officers. Only hours after Robert Veal confesses, police bring in one of his supposed co-perpetrators, 15-year-old Robert Taylor. He's a kid from a loving and protective family, but his parents didn't know he was at the police station being interrogated. Hours later, his signature appears on a confession, too. And that confession tells a similarly vicious story. The same five African-American teenagers lured Katrisa into a car, then raped her and shot her in a field. The super predator era was a period of pronounced moral panic in the United States that focused on young people, race, and crime. That's our colleague and friend, Perry Moriarty. She's a professor of law at the University of Minnesota and an expert on juvenile justice and the era of the super predator. The front end marker is more than likely the Central Park Five case. That was April of 1989. And that began an era when, in the name of public safety, in the name of being tough on crime, law enforcement authorities dropped any pretense of treating children as children and prosecuted them as adults. If they were black and brown children, they were adultified either by law or by connotation, and certainly by the media. A jogger murdered in New York Central Park. A little girl gunned down in her family's car in Los Angeles. A judge has sentenced two boys for killing another child who refused to steal candy for them. There's a tidal wave of juvenile violent crime right over the horizon. And some who study it say the worst is yet to come. Terms like wilding, bestial, predatory, in New York City newspapers alone, the term wilding appeared 156 times in articles over the eight years following the Central Park Five arrests. To put it in perspective, just a few months after the Central Park Five case, a large group of Italian and Irish predominantly teenagers in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, chased down and killed a young black teenager named Yusef Hawkins. And the headlines did not say Wilding. They did not say bestial. They did not even say gang. They said a group of white teenagers. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. 
We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have a, one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Now the police have two confessions that implicate the same five teenagers, but they're not done yet. Next up is Cheyenne Sharp, 17 years old, the third supposed co-perpetrator. He's questioned for nearly 24 hours before he also confesses and implicates the other four. And it's the same brutal story, a group of African-American teenage boys terrorizing their classmate for fun. 
Now, you have to understand how these confessions are taken. These confessions are scripted, usually by a prosecutor from the state's attorney's office. Sometimes they're written by police officers, and these scripts contain a narrative, including character development. Kids are described as thugs. There's usually references to gang membership. Women are called bitches and hoes. The scriptwriter in these cases is doing two things. He's painting the suspects in a way that nobody can ever think of them as teenagers. And he's also painting them in a way that nobody, and that means nobody in the public and nobody on the jury, can have an ounce of sympathy for them. And in doing so, he's making a script that is about as rock solid as a route to conviction as one can imagine. So far, the police have confessions from three of the Dixmore Five. And within days, they bring in the two remaining teenagers for questioning. Two brothers, 17-year-old James Harden and 15-year-old Jonathan Barr. The boys are interrogated for hours, but their father had always told them never sign anything prepared by the police. Somehow, a miracle. They remember these words, and they don't confess. But they're still named in the other three teenagers' statements, so all five are on the hook. In part because they were arresting and prosecuting kids in mass, in groups, law enforcement became very adept in that period at pitting kids against each other during the interrogation process and using kids against each other to extract false confessions. When you look at these cases of multiple false confessions, you see a similar pattern. First of all, the police usually start with the most vulnerable, most naive, most gullible of the suspects. And they focused in this case on Robert Veal. He was the weak link. Then they get a confession from Robert Veal. And what do they do with that confession? They use it as a battering ram to plow over all of the other defendants. This is how it works. The first suspect comes in and the police officers tell them that they know that he was involved in this crime. And nothing that suspect can say is going to change their mind. But they don't think he was the one who actually raped anybody or killed anybody. He was just a follower. The suspect is pressured into adopting a story in which he is a passive participant to the crime and which he fingers his co-defendants as the more active participants. Then, once that suspect confesses, they bring that confession to the next in line, and they go over the same thing again. We don't think you committed the crime. He's telling us that you committed the crime. We know you were there, but maybe you just held down her arm while they were raping and killing her. Each suspect is vying for the least culpable role. And at the end of the day, this is a very effective way to get confessions from multiple suspects. In this case, the dominoes are falling and each one of them eventually agrees to a story in which James Harden is the one who actually places the gun inside Catrice's mouth and pulls the trigger. It's no coincidence that James is one of the last ones questioned here. That's right. And at the end of the day, police got confessions from Robert Veal. Robert Taylor and Cheyenne Sharp, but they couldn't get James Harden and Jonathan Barr to confess. 
Based on the confessions, all five teenagers are charged with the assault and murder of Katrisa Matthews. And the Dixmore Five are transformed into Chicago's own Wolfpack. Pretty soon, though, it becomes apparent that this case has major problems. For starters, the teenagers' versions of what happened are wildly inconsistent. They can't agree on how they met up with Katrisa, what the group did before they ended up in that field by the interstate, or who assaulted Katrisa, and in what order. In fact, one of the only things they do agree on was that Katrisa had been murdered the day she disappeared, November 19th. But remember, this was contradicted by the medical examiner, who determined that she'd been killed three weeks later, around the time her body was found. And then here comes the biggest problem. After all five teenagers were charged, but before trial, DNA testing from the semen left on Catrice's body excludes all five suspects. Instead, this DNA belongs to a single unidentified male. This is mic drop evidence, the kind of evidence that should have resulted in these cases being dismissed before trial. Exactly. These confessions had been proven false. But instead of dropping its case, the state offers deals to two members of the Dixmore Five, Cheyenne Sharp and Robert Veal. If the boys agree to testify against their co-defendants, they'll receive much shorter sentences. Cheyenne and Robert decide to take the deal while the state moves forward with trials for the other three. And those trials, of course, are based on the stories told in the confessions, despite the DNA. You talk here about tunnel vision. This is what happens. The police officers lock into a story. They become invested in this notion of a gang rape, and they can't get out of that box. Exactly. And you see this when they have to deal with the DNA, and the prosecutor addresses it during closing argument. And what does the prosecutor say? He explains the presence of DNA as the work of a necrophiliac. Now, Steve, this isn't exactly a household term. What is a necrophiliac? It's someone who has sex with dead bodies. I knew you'd know that. This is officially the most batshit theory I think I've ever heard, by the way. I couldn't agree more. So let's get this straight. The theory here at the Dixmore Five trial was that five teenage boys sexually assault this victim. They don't leave a trace of themselves behind. Then here comes this wandering necrophiliac who comes across the body and decides to defile it. I mean, we've heard a lot of excuses for DNA in our time, but this one may take the prize. It's unbelievable that they would even present this to a jury. It's that insane. But you have to understand, in the context of a climate of fear, the irrational becomes rational. Now, in the opening statement in this case, the prosecutor said that these men, pointing at the five teenagers— These men came from a world where so-called friends were turned into a pack of jackals, hunting down their prey, and then they were done with it, killing it for sport. Jackals, can you believe that? This really is Chicago's own wolf pack. Again, it's a lot easier to fathom locking up a young, bestial, feral thing than it is a child, which is in fact what we were doing. And when you talk about children as if they were animals, it becomes so much easier to throw away their lives. To just not worry about doing that last bit of DNA testing, figure out whose DNA was actually left on Catrice and Matthew's body. It becomes easier to try them as adults. It becomes easier to sentence them to life sentences or even the death penalty. It becomes easier 
to just lock them up and throw away the key. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have a, one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. The dehumanizing story embedded in these boys' confessions, well, it works. Each of the Dixmore Five is convicted. And the three who don't cut deals, Robert Taylor, Jonathan Barr, and James Harden, are sentenced to life in prison. Cheyenne Sharp and Robert Veal serve their time and are eventually released with murder convictions on their records. 
But the other three languished behind bars, forgotten people. But they were not forgotten by their parents or their loved ones. You know, I'll never forget learning that Jonathan Barr and James Harden's dad would literally drive around with boxes full of files regarding their cases in his trunk, trying to get lawyers interested in taking his son's cases. And Robert Taylor's family did similar things. They would write letters and letters and letters to lawyers, begging them for help. Finally, in 2010, we learned about the case of the Dixmore Five. Our colleague, Josh Tepfer, knew a public defender named Jennifer Blagg, who had represented Robert Taylor on appeal. She referred the case to Josh, and we agreed to take Robert's case. By this time, Robert was in his early 30s. That's right. He had served over 15 years of his sentence. Robert Taylor grew up with his parents, sister, and brother in Harvey, Illinois, right next to Dixmore. From day one, Robert's dad, a Navy vet, was his strongest defender. Robert Sr. refused to be broken by the fact that his son had gone to prison because of the words he'd signed his name to. When the Center on Wrongful Convictions agreed to take Robert's case, his dad became a major presence in our lives. I can still remember the smell of his leather jacket when he hugged us and welcomed us to his family's struggle. Around the same time, organizations like the Innocence Project and Exoneration Project got involved in representing other members of the Dixmore Five. Our collective first priority was identifying whose DNA had been left at the crime scene. We had a new tool called CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System. And over the time frame, since the advent of DNA testing in the late 1980s, that database had grown. And so the chances of finding the identity of the person who raped and killed Katrisa Matthews had grown. Exactly. I mean, let's remember for a moment that we're talking here about DNA that was taken from the semen left on a rape victim. You cannot ask for better evidence than that. And it's just sitting there, forgotten. How can you not want to know whose DNA that was? Isn't that the most important question in this case? It had been sitting there unanswered for 15 years. But where was it sitting? That was the first challenge. And after a year of searching, we found the DNA in some warehouse or in some trailer. And we then had to get permission from the court to test the DNA. We then sent the DNA off for testing to a lab, and we waited. And the lab extracted a profile. And when that profile was extracted, it was run through the CODIS database. And miracle of miracles, in March of 2011, we got a hit. And the hit was to a man, not a boy, a man named Willie Randolph. Now, Willie Randolph was a troubled guy. He was much older than Katrisa or the Dixmore Five. When Katrisa disappeared, he was 33 years old, more than twice her age. Willie had been in and out of prison his entire adult life for all sorts of different offenses. In fact, he'd been paroled only a few months before Katrisa was killed to a house within a mile of where she lived. And Willie Randolph had previously been accused of rape in that very same field by the interstate where Katrisa's body was found. This is a person with a history of these kinds of attacks. And his DNA, and no one else's, was present at the crime scene. Finally, it all made sense. 
when we learned the identity of Willie Randolph, when we investigated his background, when we learned the history of abusing and sexually assaulting women, including young women, teenagers, we thought this case was over. We thought we were going to get these boys out tomorrow. Exactly. There's no relationship at all between Willie Randolph and any of the Dixmore Five. He's not mentioned in any of their confessions. And why would there be a relationship? This is a man with a long history of violence in his record, and none of these boys had a history of violence. Right. He's twice their age. When they were growing up in the neighborhood, he was in prison. Willie Randolph is the guy who did this to Catrice Matthews. The DNA proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now we had to convince the prosecutors to do the right thing. But as incredible as it sounds, the state wouldn't let go of their necrophilia theory. And the case dragged on for months. You know, old habits die hard. The state actually suggested again that maybe Willie Randolph was their mystery necrophiliac. This is an unbelievable thing. Still, they're clinging to this theory that five teenage boys assaulted Catrice Matthews, left no trace of their DNA behind. And here comes Willie Randolph, the older man, the man with a history of assaults and violent crime and rape in that very field, and just happens to defile her body. It, it beggars belief. It still took six to seven months to investigate whether there was any link between Willie Randolph and any of the Dixmore Five. There wasn't one. Meanwhile, we were coming back to court every few weeks to get an update on the state's investigation and to ask the judge, is today the day of exoneration? And for six long months, we were disappointed. I remember coming home after those court dates and crying with frustration that I was able to go home. But Robert Taylor, our client, had to go back to a prison cell. Yeah, I remember pulling out my hair. And I I had hair back then. Um, (laughs) That's where it all went. That's where it all went because we had the best possible evidence of their innocence. And not only were they refusing to clear our clients, Willie Randolph was on the street. He was out of prison on parole. And he could be doing this to somebody else. It was driving me crazy. Every time before we walked into that courtroom, I remember watching Robert hold his whole body just just taut. His muscles would be tense. And you could see those 20 years of trauma that he had endured and the toll it had taken on him. He couldn't relax into the possibility that it was going to be his day that day. And it wasn't his day for months. Until it finally was. On November 3rd, 2011... Robert Veal, Cheyenne Sharp, James Harden, Jonathan Barr, and Robert Taylor were exonerated. Their convictions were thrown out nearly 20 years to the day after Catrice Matthews' disappearance. The Dixmore Five had wrongly served a total of more than 50 years in prison. Eventually, Willie Randolph was charged with the attack on Catrice Matthews based on DNA evidence. He's still awaiting trial today. We're proud to have helped free the Dixmore Five, but as our colleague Josh Tepfer put it, this is not justice. Justice would have happened a long time ago. Hello. Hey, Robert. Steve and Laura. Long time no see. <laughs> too long, too long. It's good to hear your voice. What's going on with you these days, Robert? Uh, I'm hanging in now. How's your son doing? He's all right. I got to pick him up. Too, boy, you got to pick him up from school? Yeah. I pick them up every day. How old's your boy now? Seven, going away. What's your favorite thing to do with your son, Robert? I just like seeing him smile, that's all. 
you can't give those 20 years back to Robert or to any of the Dixmore Five or any of the guys we're going to talk about on this podcast. You can't give that time back. But what you can do is make the years, decades that they lost mean something. One of the greatest tragedies, in my opinion, and I've been teaching about the Central Park Five case for years, and to this day, when I introduce the case in my criminal law classes, the one thing that people don't know about the case is that the kids were innocent. So few people knew that. Even after Matthias Reyes confessed, even after these kids were let out of prison, even after they were compensated, it is the footnote in this story that gets lost in our collective consciousness. Maybe not anymore. Finally, there is attention being brought to who they actually were and what they suffered. And that's a big part of how Steve and I approach these cases, right? It's about, of course, getting them out of prison, fighting for them, opening up those doors. But it's also about telling the stories. It's about making it meaningful. It's about saying their name. It's about not forgetting what happened to them and changing it so it doesn't happen again. Like the Central Park Five, the story of the Dixmore Five is about convictions that were driven by prejudice rather than proof. But the injustices of the super-predator era were not just a New York City thing or a Chicago thing. And although we may want to think so, they're not even really a 1990s thing. In times of great fear or moral panic, prejudices can distort the search for the truth. Mistaken assumptions, faulty investigations, and flawed evidence are all still real, and they still cause wrongful convictions across the country every day. We tell these stories so that we can learn from them, so that one day there won't be any more Dixmore Fives. To all the Dixmore Five, but especially to our client and friend, Robert Taylor, you've endured years of injustice while remaining a pillar of strength and resilience. To you and your families, we wish you all the best. Thanks for letting us tell your story. Next week, we'll tell you the story of a false confession out of Arkansas, where a 12-year-old boy maintains his innocence in a murder case until police turn off the cameras. Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Special thanks to our executive producer, Jason Flom, and the team at Signal Company Number 1, executive producer Kevin Wardus, senior producer Ann Pope, and additional production and editing by Connor Hall. Our music was composed by Jay Ralph. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Laura Nyrider. And you can follow me on Twitter at S. Drizzen. For more information on the show, visit wrongfulconvictionpodcast.com. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram at wrongfulconviction, on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast, and on Twitter at wrongconviction. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.